Well, Merry Christmas. Have you ever had an experience where something that was larger than life came down to earth? Have you ever had that kind of moment? Like maybe you met a celebrity or something. Uh, Yesterday, um, I had somebody text me a picture. They were at the Tennessee-Florida game in Tennessee, and they were just walking into the stadium, and Peyton Manning was beside them. And so they were like, whoa. And so they took a picture and uh, texted me, and I was like, man. And so uh, for that particular Tennessee fan, he was brought down to earth yesterday in more ways than one (laughs) because we got destroyed by Florida. But um, maybe you've had an experience like that, Um, or maybe you've gotten to take a behind-the-scenes tour before of something that was really impressive, and and you were like, wow, like this is where they get ready or, you know, whatever. Um, Or maybe just a stage of life you've experienced being brought down to earth because of something It's like this person that you had just been dating for a while, and then you're driving around, driving down the road one day, and you're just thinking, wait, this is my spouse. When did that happen? How did, like, whoa. Maybe you've had that moment, or maybe that's what it was like for you becoming a parent. Um, You were, you know, driving home from the hospital or the adoption court, and you're looking back, and you're thinking, wait a minute what did I just do? I'm responsible now for that person back there to make sure that they stay alive. And so you were brought down to earth in that moment. Maybe that's what it was like when you bought a house or I don't know. We, we have moments like that though, don't we? Where something that's larger than life comes down to earth. And sometimes that's really inspiring. Like when you meet somebody who's a celebrity and, and somebody says they were just so down to earth. That's a really good thing. That's a positive thing. Other times this is, a sobering thing, isn't it? We've all experienced things like that. Here's why we're talking about that. Because at Christmas, the God who is lofty and high and exalted and theoretical and distant comes down to earth. And if we are going to experience him in a meaningful redemptive way, then we've got to come down to earth too. And that's what this series is about. How we're going to do that is today, we're going to look at the story of a man named Zechariah in Luke chapter one. Next week, we'll look at this woman named Mary and her story in Luke chapter one. And then the next week, we'll talk about the shepherds in Luke chapter two. And here's the goal of this series. Here's why we're walking through Luke chapter one and two together as a church family. Is I just, what I've been thinking and praying is just that we would experience God this Christmas in a real way, in a tangible way. Maybe you are someone who right now your faith just feels weak. And my prayer for you in this series is that you would have an encounter with Jesus that would strengthen your faith and make it real in your life, make it personal to you. Maybe you're a committed Christian and you've been here a long, long time and you, you just feel like, man, you're on fire and you, you know so much scripture and, and that's awesome. My hope for you in this series is that those things that you know, they, they would come down to earth and be evidenced in the way that you love people who are different than you. We're going to talk about that the third week in the series. Or if you're here and 
and you're watching online and you're spiritual, but not religious. Maybe you're curious, but you're not convinced. We're not gonna answer all of your questions about Christianity in this series at all. But I do hope that this series could be helpful on your journey and that we would give you some questions to think about in this series that would actually make Jesus compelling to you, that you'd wanna find out more. That's the goal of this series, that all of us, regardless of where we are on our walk, that all of us would have a real encounter with Jesus, that, that the Christmas story would come down to earth for us this Christmas. So today we're gonna to be in Luke chapter one. If you have a Bible uh, and wanna follow along, Luke chapter one, it's just part one. Um, we're gonna talk about this man named Zechariah. Now the gospel of Luke um, is named Luke because the guy who wrote its name was Luke. So it's a really creative title. And uh, Luke was a doctor and a friend of the apostle Paul. And so he accompanied Paul on a lot of his uh, trips around the Mediterranean rim. And so he had come to believe in Jesus and he knew all of these people who, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he decided that he wanted to write an account to help this man named Theophilus who had heard about Jesus and had been taught about Jesus. He wanted to help this man named Theophilus know the truthfulness of what he had been taught. And so Luke writes his gospel primarily for non-Jewish people, which is unique compared to the other gospel accounts. And the way that he starts his gospel is unique. He starts with a story before the birth of Jesus. He starts with the story of this man named Zechariah. That's what we're gonna look at today. So um, first we're gonna uh, look at the first three verses because they give us the setting for the story. We're going to talk about those. Then we're going to walk through the rest of the story. And then we're going to talk about what it might mean for us. Sound good? So Luke chapter one, starting in verse five, here's the setting for the story. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth, verse six. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord, verse seven. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive and both of them were well along in years. So this lets us know the setting of this story. It tells us when it happens. It says in the days of King Herod of Judea, we know that King Herod reigned from 37 to four BC. And this is happening towards the end of his reign. So probably five to four BC is when this story is taking place. It also tells us where this is happening. It says King Herod was the ruler of Judea. And we find out later in the story that Zechariah and Elizabeth live in the country in Judea, not meaning the country of Judea, but meaning like they don't live in a city. They live in a small town out in the middle of nowhere. And this also tells us something about these characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth. It tells us that Zechariah was a priest and he was a priest in Abijah's division. 
What that means is you can read about this in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, if you're really interested in this. Um, but basically, there were all of these priests, but there was only one temple. And so somebody had the idea, wait a minute, we can't have everybody show up at the same time. There won't be anything for them to do. It'll just be too many people running around with nothing to do. And so what they did is they made 24 divisions of priests so that there could be a roster and a rotation. So from the very beginning, uh, there's people who organize stuff and aren't you thankful for those kind of people? And so they put together this rotation and the uh, division of Abijah was the eighth of the 24 divisions. And that's where Zechariah happened to be. So the way this would work is uh, each division would be on duty twice a year. And so twice a year, Zechariah and the people who were part of his division would go to Jerusalem and work in the temple. So that's what it means that he's from Abijah's division. And it tells us that his wife was from the daughters of Aaron. What does that mean? It means that she was also from a priestly family. And so the two of them together, I mean, it is a match made in heaven and it was especially uh, favored if you were a priest to be married to another woman who was from a priestly family. And so it's like, man, this is a great couple. And not only are they both priestly, but they're just good people. It tells us that they're just without blame. Do you know any families like that? Like you just spend time with them and you're like, man, they're just good people. They're just trustworthy. They do anything for you. They're just kind. That's how this family was. But this family also knew some pain because they had experienced infertility. And maybe some of you in the room, certainly there are people in our church Maybe you're watching online and that's also something that you have struggled with. And they knew that pain as well. And in their culture, there was also some embarrassment that went along with not being able to have kids because maybe God was, I don't know, withholding a blessing from us for some reason. So there was some embarrassment. There was some shame connected to this. And so they are good people, but they know what it's like to have pain. That's the setting for this story. Now think about something with me for just a minute before we move on and look at what happens. Isn't it interesting that Luke starts his story like this? Like if you've grown up around the church or around the Bible a little bit, maybe these things don't seem that foreign to you. You're like, yeah, King Herod, we talk about him every Christmas and Judea, heard of that before and Abijah's division, never heard of that. But the Bible's full of weird stuff that you don't really understand until somebody explains it. And then, you know, the daughter of Aaron thing, I probably could have figured that one out. And so maybe if you've grown up around the Bible, like this stuff kind of makes a little bit of sense. But imagine that you're a Gentile, first century, non-Jewish person and Luke is writing to convince you that Jesus is someone worth following. And he starts with this distant foreign story. Why doesn't he start with some of the teachings about Jesus? Some of the moral things that Jesus did. Why does he start like this? Maybe if you're new to the Bible, this is one of the, the things that kind of confuses you. Why are there so many weird names and weird places? And it's just so foreign. 
And maybe that at times feels confusing and it makes the idea of Christianity less compelling. But here's what I actually think is true. I think that this is actually more compelling. And here's why. From the very beginning of Luke's gospel, he wants for us to see that Christianity, the Christian faith, is not this lofty theoretical idea. It's incredibly down to earth. Why does he include details about King Herod and Judea and Abijah's division? Because these are real people in a real place. This is not just some list of beliefs and morals that you have to live up to. This is stuff that happened. From the very beginning, Luke wants you to see that the Christian faith is down to earth. Does the Christian faith explore some of the biggest philosophical questions of life? Absolutely. But it's not just this theoretical category to be studied. It's something to be experienced because it's real. It's personal. It's down to earth. When I was in seminary, I took a class um, in Israel for a month called the Geography of the Bible. And when I was preparing for the class and literally even on the plane on my way to Israel, I was just journaling and I was thinking like, God, I just want you to meet me in Israel. I was anticipating like this very meaningful, you know, connection with God on this higher plane because I was in Israel, you know, and I've built it up and I'm going to walk where Jesus walked and I'm going to see the Sea of Galilee and I'm going to get to do all this stuff. And so I'm just like fired up. And then I get there and I realize, wait a minute, this is just a normal place. It's just a place and it's not even that pretty. Like you drive around and you're like, what in the world, especially in the Southern part. I mean, you get up North and that's why I think Jesus probably spent most of his time up North because it's way better up there. But you drive around in the Southern part and I mean, it is just, it's like, this is it? This is Israel? And here's why I tell you that because in my mind, it was gonna be this like mystical lofty, theoretical, we're going to connect with God, Israel. And it was so down to earth. In fact, in my journal, sometimes I'll try to summarize a season of life, looking back on it with a word or a phrase that just helps me remember what God was teaching me in that moment. And the word I wrote for my Israel experience was dirt. <laughs> dirt. Because the Christian faith is not this lofty theoretical idea. It's something that happened. It's a real place with real people. And God is about to interact with Zechariah in a real way. Look at what happens in verse 8. Here's where the story picks up. When his division was on duty, so it's one of his times of the year, and he was serving as a priest before God, verse 9, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord 
and burn incense. Now, basically what this means is even when they had divided it up between the divisions, there were still too many of them. There weren't enough jobs for everybody. And so what they would do is cast lots. So it was basically like, you know, they would write down everybody's name, put it in a hat, and they're going to draw to see who does what job. And most priests were never drawn their entire lifetime because there was too many priests and not enough jobs. And once you were drawn one time, your name was never put back in the hat. So you've got one chance to do something in the temple if you're blessed. And most priests never get that opportunity. Zechariah is an old man. And so he has never done this before. He's been going to Jerusalem to report for duty many, many times. But he's never been drawn before. And now his name is drawn. The lot falls to him and he's up. His job is to go in and burn some incense. That's it. But in his professional life and even in his spiritual life, this is the biggest moment he's ever had. Imagine what you would be feeling if for years and years and years you had been, you know, coming and preparing. And at this point, you've come to not expect that your name's going to be drawn. And now your name's drawn. He's probably excited. He's maybe a little nervous. It's kind of like the backup quarterback. You know, it's like you were there all week. You know the playbook, you know, but you're not planning on going in. But now it's his time. And he's going to go in and burn the incense. And it says, verse 10, At the hour of incense, which is the time where he's going to go in, at the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside because that was the customary thing. And what they are praying for is God's restoration and redemption of his people, of Israel. What they're praying for is that God would send the Messiah that they've been longing for. And by the way, it's been 400 years since they've come back from exile and heard anything from the Lord. Think about how long that is. So they're just praying as is the custom. It's like, it's the typical prayer you pray. Like, you know, when I'm done with the sermon today, I'm going to say, let's pray. And that's your cue to know it's over. They're doing the customary prayer where they ask God, would you remember your people? Would you visit your people? So they're praying for God's Messiah to come. He's just finished praying that. And then the priest would pray that himself. So everybody's gathered. It's his time to go in. In verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And then notice this little detail. Standing to the right of the altar of incense. I don't know if that's significant or not. But here's what's significant to me. The reason that you would say it was to the right, not to the left, is because it happened. That's not a detail you think to include unless this really happened. So the angel appears, he's to the right. And verse 12, when Zachariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. And you would be too. If you were walking into your room at night and all of a sudden an angel appeared and you'd be like, whoa, what are you doing in here? He's not expecting this. And so he's terrified. Verse 13, 
But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. What prayer is he talking about? Well, he's just finished praying on behalf of the nation of Israel, that God would remember his promise, that he would send his Messiah, that he would liberate the people from Roman captivity. He's just finished praying that. So that's what the angel's talking about. He says, God has heard your prayer and God is going to keep his promise. And then he gives them some additional, some bonus good news. He says, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John. I know you're old, but your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son and you're going to name him John. And the name John means God is gracious. Verse 14, there will be joy and delight for you and many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. That's a reference to the Old Testament, someone being set apart for a particular service to the Lord. He will will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Now, everything from verses 13 through 17 is basically the angel saying, look, God is going to keep his promise to Israel. He is going to send the Messiah and you are going to have a son who's going to prepare the way for that Messiah. In the book of Malachi chapter four, there's this prophecy that there will be a prophet who comes like Elijah. He will come with the power and spirit of Elijah to prepare the people to receive the Messiah. And Zechariah knows that prophecy. And the angel is saying, you are going to get to be the dad of that guy. Your son is going to prepare the way for the Messiah How would you respond to that if you were Zechariah? Look at what he does, verse 18. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. How can I know this? Or in other words, are you sure Because I don't know if you know how pregnancy works, but we're old. Now think about how significant it is that Zechariah responds that way. Why is that significant? Because he is a faithful Jew. He's someone who knows the instructions of the Lord. So that means he's been studying his whole life, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. He knows that the whole Jewish story started when God came to a man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and said, you're going to have a kid and that kid's going to bless the whole world. He knows that story. And Abraham and Sarah were old 
And they didn't believe the promise. And God said, well, let me show you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this promise anyway, and I'm going to prove to you how good I am, how powerful I am, how gracious I am. He knows that stuff. In fact, he knows it better than we know it. He could, you know, run circles around us in his explanations of the Old Testament. He knows all of that. And he just finished praying that God would do something miraculous by sending the Messiah to restore the people. He's just done a very religious thing. But here's what's so interesting. In this moment for Zechariah, faith in God and his promises was a theoretical, lofty idea. Like, Father, we, as we burn this incense, we ask that you would visit your people and you would fulfill your promise to send a Messiah, you know. And then he's going back out. Like, he's just going through the motions. Faith is just this, yeah, God can do the supernatural, of course. You look at Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah trusted God. And, but when that same exact scenario is coming down to earth into his life. He doesn't believe that that's going to happen. And so look how the angel responds. Verse 19, the angel answered him. "Um, I'm Gabriel (laughs) who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. So look, you're taking it up with the wrong guy. I stand in the presence of God and he sent me here to tell you this good news. And this is how you're responding. Verse 20, now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And so literally that's what happens. Zechariah becomes mute until the day his son is born because he didn't believe this promise. It's God's discipline on him. You're supposed to be my priest. You're supposed to be interceding for the people and you don't believe that I can do this? <laughs> Look at verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. They're like, all he had to do was go in there and light the thing. What's going on? Is he a, we know he's old. Should we go check on him? Why is he in there so long? (laughs) Verse 22, when he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. And he's done it by giving her a son whose name means God is gracious. Now, before we talk about what this means for everyone, I just want to say something briefly to those of you who maybe are struggling with infertility. Unfortunately, God does not promise that what happened for 
Zechariah and Elizabeth will happen for everyone. But he is powerful and he is kind. And you are free to ask. But here's what else I want you to hear. Is that we do not want to be a church where parenthood is lifted up as the ideal, spiritual, mature way to do life either. Or where maybe you're single and you feel like marriage is so celebrated that as long as you're single, you're a second class Christian. Listen, we don't want to be that kind of church. Now, Zechariah, on the day that all of this happens, that his son is finally born, he finally starts to speak. And what comes out is this amazing prophecy. And I just want to read it to you briefly. This is in, in chapter one still, verse 67. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, he has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And now he starts talking about his son. Verse 76, and you child will be called a prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah comes to see that the God who made these promises, and they may have just seemed so theoretical and lofty, the God who made those promises has come down to earth. He has entered into real time. This is not something just to be believed and held onto as part of your heritage. This is something to be experienced in a personal way. Zechariah comes to see that. The Christian faith is not meant to be a theoretical, lofty, moral, or ideal. It is meant to be experienced. It's meant to come down to earth. When I was in St. Louis before uh, we moved here, the whole reason I moved to St. Louis was because Courtney was there and I was trying to win her back. And so um, I quit my job in Kentucky and I had a good job and benefits and I loved what I was doing, but I was like, but I wanna be with Courtney. So I moved to St. Louis to become an intern, right? And so I was really stressed about what we were gonna do financially because it's not a great position to be in when you're trying to you know, marry a girl. Um, and so I was stressed about that and I was looking at just numbers and I, I just started praying, God, here's what we need 
Here's what we need if we're going to make it. And I grew up in a home where I was taught that you give a tithe for sure. That's 10%. But an offering is anything above a tithe. And so I I grew up being taught that that you at least give 10%, but really, like, you need to be somebody who gives way more than that. And I grew up hearing stories about people who had trusted God with their finances and God came through. and, And I believed that. Like, I'd been to seminary. I believe God takes care of his people. It's good to support, you know, the work of the church and missions. And I believed all that. It's good to be generous. God will provide for people. I I believe all that. But I got to St. Louis and that lofty theoretical idea, I had to decide, am I really going to try this? Is this really going to come down to earth? And I'm not telling you this because I'm, you know, a hero person in the faith. I'm telling you this because it happened. But I just decided, God, here's the number that I think we need. You know better than me. I still want to be generous with what you give us. So we're still going to commit to give this percentage And we're just going to trust that you're going to help us. It makes no sense to me to give this right now when that's not going to help us get here to this number, but I'm going to trust you. And what's amazing is after a year, I looked back at that number I'd written down and through no effort of my own, through random things that came my way, God ended up giving us more than the number I wrote down. Now, again, that is not like, oh, look, I'm so, so be like Nate. It's not the purpose. (laughs) The purpose is just to show you that, look, this lofty theoretical idea is meant to come down to earth. So what would it look like for your faith to come down to earth? What would it look like for your faith to move from just being this thing that's like this list of things you grew up believing in, I'm supposed to do this, but for it to become personal and real to you, just like it did for Zechariah? Let me help you think about this in a few different areas. What would it look like for God's presence to come down to earth for you? See, if if you've been a Christian, you believe God's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. But what would it look like for that belief to come down to earth in your life? So that when you're about to to log into the meeting that you're kind of nervous about, it begins to dawn on you, wait, God is with me. God is with me right now. When you're about to approach a conversation that you're nervous about, what if God's Omnipresence was not just a lofty category for you, but it was actually something that was down to earth for you. What about God's sovereignty? God is sovereign. He's reigning over all things. There's nothing that's outside of his control. Well, that's great. It's not always helpful when somebody tells you that when you're in the middle of something, you know, hard. God's in control. Well, thank you. Um, But what would it look like for that lofty theoretical idea to come down to earth in your life. 
What about God's word? We believe God's the inspired word. It's inerrant. It's useful for teaching. We stand by the Bible. Well, that's awesome. And we do believe those things. But what does it look like for that to not just be this lofty theoretical idea, but for it to actually become real in your life? What would it look like for you? Uh, This is, uh, I'll tell you that in a minute. Hold on. Um, I'll save it till the end. Um, What about God's people? See, you've heard, if you've been around any length of time, well, you know, the church isn't a building. The church is the people. The church isn't any leader. The church is the people. And now we find ourselves in a situation as a church where that lofty theoretical idea that the church is God's people needs to come down to earth. What would it look like? for God's power to come down to earth in your life. You believe God's omnipotent. He's all powerful. But if people heard your prayers, would they know that you believe in a God who can do all things? What would it look like for God's grace to come down to earth? God accepts sinners. He forgives sinners. But do you know that here? Maybe you're carrying around some guilt or some shame because of a way that you hurt someone you love or you disappointed someone or you embarrassed yourself. But did you know that you do not have to crucify yourself for that? Because the Messiah that God promised to send came. His name is Jesus. And he went to the cross and he died in your place, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. So God's grace can come down to earth in your heart. What about the person who's wronged you? The person who hurt you or hurt your family? God has grace for sinners. I'm a sinner. Praise God. I'm saved. What does it look like for that idea to come down to earth when somebody has sinned against you? The Christian faith is not meant to be this lofty theoretical idea. It's meant to be personal. It's got to come down to earth. So here's the homework. This is what I was about to tell you. The homework is, if you are a follower of Jesus, would you just pick one of the beliefs of the Christian faith? It could be one of the ones I mentioned. It could be something different. Would you pick it this week and would you say, okay, God, I want to I find a way to, to bring this down to earth into my life this week. I don't know what that looks like for you. I know that maybe is not super tangible for you, but... You've got to, the Holy Spirit is in you. So he can work with you on what the details look like. I don't know the details for you. But what would it look like for you to take something that you believe, some lofty idea, and make it personal this week? 
to bring it down to earth this week. And listen, if you would consider yourself spiritual but not religious, you're, you're curious but you're not convinced, here's the homework for you this week. This is not easy, all right? Would you commit this week, seven days, to reading the Gospel of Luke and asking two questions? Who is Jesus and what happened? Who is Jesus and what happened? It would take you about 20 minutes a day if you wanted to read the the whole Gospel of Luke this week. 20 minutes a day. Those two questions. The reason that's significant, the reason that I'm asking you to do that is because exploring the Christian faith is not about primarily thinking through the, the set of beliefs or morals. It's primarily having an encounter with the God who came down to earth. And if we are going to experience him, then we also have to come down to earth ourselves. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness to keep your promises. Thank you that Jesus did come down to earth. God, would you help us to do the same? God, would you help us to to not live in, in the lofty theoretical world, but God, would you help us live in this world? Would we be people who don't just know the Bible and can quote scripture, but would we we be people who others see the scripture coming out of our lives? Pray that you'd be honored in how we live as a result of this sermon. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.